Well, welcome to Pastor's Day Off at ABF. Uh, for those of you who have been around church world for a while, you understand that uh, pastors work awfully hard uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas with the Christmas cafe and the Christmas Eve service and all those other things. And so we usually like uh, to allow Scott to take the uh, Sunday off after Christmas and uh, just rest and relax and be somewhere else other than here, so he is doing that. And I just want to, uh, I know they've just left, but I just want to say a special thanks to Chad and Erica. There's probably nobody in the church who works harder leading up to Christmas than the two of them. And um, <clears throat> yeah, they were gracious enough to stay uh, here this Sunday. They're going to take next Sunday off, but we wanted at least one professional to be on the stage this morning. Um, I, my name is Bill Barry. I, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Bible scholar or, or Bible teacher. I'm, I'm just a financial advisor. Uh, but somehow we've kind of started this tradition with me being the relief valve for the pastor on the Sunday after Christmas. And so um, you get me today. And, um, and that's, that's just kind of how it goes. So it's really, it's really actually kind of a good gig because I get to talk about whatever I want and I don't have to stay in a series or do anything like that, and so it, it, it kind of like it that way. Last year, um, I talked the, the Sunday after Christmas, and I talked from Philippians 3 about planning for the next year, and this is really kind of a great time to stop and take inventory the week between Christmas and New Year's and look at what happened this last year, plan for the next year, and so I thought about preaching the same sermon that I did last time because, you know, I, I figured... Of all the people here, you know, half of you weren't here last year, and the other half don't remember anything that I said anyway, so I could probably get away with it. But then I thought, you know, the, the message is actually on agorabible.org, and um, if you wanted to listen to it, you could go to the website and uh, you, could, you could listen to that. And actually, you know, I would recommend it. Um, it. It is a good thing, and one of the things I really always spend a lot of time is at the end of the year kind of reflecting on the last year, kind of looking at the year ahead, and trying to figure out how can I grow in Christ um, over the next uh, season. And that's something that we talked about from Philippians 3. So I'd encourage you to go to the website um, and take a look at that. It's um, agorabible.org, and you just go to the media section and message series for 2014, and it's the first one to come up. It's called Preparing for 2015. Just between you and me, you can use it for 2016 <laughs> as well. Uh, since we talked about Philippians 3 last year, I thought we would talk about Philippians 4 uh, today. As a financial advisor, one of the things that I get to do is I get to have great conversations with people every day. And I sit down with people and we talk about what are their hopes and dreams and their aspirations, what are their fears, uh, what keeps them up at night, what do they worry about. Uh, we talk about where they are in this current season of life and we talk about where they wish their life was. And we have these great conversations and what I've found is that there are a lot of people, even a lot of people with a lot of money, who really don't have contentment in their life. They've got a lot of discontent going on. So we're going to talk about contentment this morning. Um, what is the one thing that nobody in Southern California has? Water. I like that, water. Uh, I was thinking of enough, you know? It is very rare to find somebody that has enough who would sit across the table from you and say, you know what, I, I really got everything I need, and I don't need any more, you know? 
It's, it's not a common thing. So I want to take you this morning to Philippians uh, chapter 4 and um, talk about what I consider to be nine of the most disruptive words in the entire Bible. Paul says this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And Paul goes on to say, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled, of going hungry, of having abundance, and suffering need. So I want to look at three things this morning. You can take out your, uh, your sermon notes in the outline there. Uh, you might want to jot a couple of things down. We're going to go fast, so buckle up your seatbelts. But the, um, the three things I want to talk about this morning are actually fairly simple. Number one, I want to talk about what is contentment and what is it not. Number two, I want to talk about what is it that challenges our contentment? Why is it so hard for us to be content? And then third, I want to talk about how do we find true contentment, all right? So I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can look up words in the dictionary with the best of them. Um, and this word, contentment, is the, the Greek word archeo. It's used throughout the New Testament in a number of different passages. And the definition, it means to be enough, to be satisfied, to be content, to suffice or be sufficient. In short, contentment is not wanting more. Contentment is, um, you know, like the old joke. Uh, you know, who's more, who's more content? The man with $5 million or the man with five kids? And the obvious answer is the man with five kids because he doesn't want any more. <laughs> that is what contentment is. I don't want any more. So let's be clear about what contentment is not. It is not complacency. It is not satisfaction with the status quo. If you have a lousy job, by all means, go get a better job. You know, it is not um, mediocrity. God wants us to strive for excellence, so it's not complacency. Contentment in the waiting period, though, while you're in a difficult situation, contentment does not say, when I get that job, I'll be happy. It doesn't say, when I get married, then I'll be happy. When my situation changes, then I'll be happy. Contentment is a deep peace and, and, and happiness in the current circumstances, even when you're looking forward to other circumstances. Contentment also is not faking happiness. It's not putting on a, a fake smile and, you know, thinking happy thoughts. Uh, Paul wrote this passage when he was in prison. It's not just about smiling and, and you know, a fake, a fake contentment, a fake happiness. If, if my business fails, if my marriage fails, if I lose a child, if I'm in some third world prison like Paul was here, I'm not going to write just be happy, just put on a happy face and count your blessings. It's not what it's about. Contentment goes far deeper than that. It goes to, am I convinced that my loving Father has given me and will give me everything that I need. In the depth of my soul, is Jesus really all I need? Is he sufficient for where I am right now? Jeff Mannion from Ada Bible Church says this, contentment is the cultivation of a satisfied heart. 
I like that. Contentment is the cultivation of a satisfied heart. You see, contentment says, right here, right now, in my current situation, I'm fully alive, I'm fully engaged, and I am fully content with where I am. Even if I'm looking forward to something else, it's not waiting for something else to happen. It's the strength to be content and fully alive in my present difficult circumstances. I was at a conference uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, I got to meet uh, Rick Warren, who's the pastor of Saddleback Church down in Orange County, and, and he came and he talked to our group, and um, it was great. I, I, love, I always love listening to Rick. If you don't know who he is, he's the one that wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and I didn't realize this, but The Purpose Driven Life was the best-selling book in the world for five years straight. The Purpose Driven Life has been translated into more languages than any other book in history other than the Bible. And the way that Rick puts it, when you write the best-selling book in the world for five years, you make a lot of money. Like, like buy your own island kind of money and retire with little drinks and umbrellas in them and things and have people <laughs> serve you kind of money. And so Rick sat down with his wife and they started talking about what are we going to do with all this success and all this money coming in. And the way only Rick can put it, he says, you know, when the first sentence of your book is, it's not about me, you know, you can't just go spend all the money on me. And so Rick and his wife decided not to get a new house, not to get a new car. In fact, they decided to give away all of the money from the proceeds of that book tens of millions of dollars and they didn't change their lifestyle at all how do you do that ask yourself could you do that what does it take you have to have a deep-seated contentment you have to truly believe that what i have is all i need what god has provided for me is is what i need and i don't need any more and i said Contentment is not complacency. For Rick, this wasn't complacency. He's used the money that's come in from that book to change the world. I mean, he has instituted educational programs and health programs and uh, literacy programs in third world countries all around the world. And he's changing probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives. He's taken thousands of people from Saddleback Church to Africa to... Um, to teach people how to do health care and to teach literacy and to take care of you know, issues with poverty in sustainable ways. It's unbelievable the kinds of things that he's doing. You see, contentment's not complacency. Contentment frees you to use the resources that you have for God's glory and for his kingdom. So contentment is freedom, not complacency, not fake. It's real stuff and it makes a difference in, in the world. The other thing is, you know, you don't get to judge somebody else's contentment. You know, you don't get to look at somebody else and say, you know, if Rick only gave away half of that money and he bought a really nice house, you know, you don't get to say, yeah, that pastor guy, he, uh, he's in this really nice house. What's going on with him? You know, contentment is an individual thing. It's just you. It's you and God. You're the only one that gets to decide for you what contentment is for you. And you don't get to decide for other people. Philippians 4 tells us, also, that contentment is a learned discipline. Nobody's born content. 
You know, did you, um, did you have to teach your kids to say thank you, or did they just naturally say thank you for you, for things? You know, do, do your kids prefer playing with their own toys, or do they like to go after other kids' toys? You know, we have to learn contentment. None of us were born that way. Wouldn't it be great if we could just learn contentment in school, or if we could just learn it in a sermon? You know, we preach today, and, and hey, everybody's got contentment, and we're done. But unfortunately, what happens is people need to learn contentment in the real world and through experience. And unfortunately, so many people spend their lives chasing after things that they think are going to make them happy, and it takes most of their life to find that it's empty and it doesn't satisfy. Solomon was like that. You know, Solomon had everything. Solomon had wisdom. He had wealth. He had women. He had... a you know, beautiful homes, he had power, he had influence. And towards the end of his life, he wrote, it's all meaningless. It's empty. It doesn't satisfy. Don't let that happen to you. Don't go through your whole life pursuing something that's not going to satisfy. And we say, but, you know, maybe that house didn't satisfy Solomon, but it would satisfy me. You know, I'd like to have that. You know, or, or we look at, you know, we say, I don't know how that celebrity could be so unhappy with all that money. If I had all that money and all that stuff, I would be so happy. And you wouldn't. You know why? Because money doesn't change you. Money just makes you more of who you are. If you're a kind, generous person, money just makes you more generous. And if you're a, a stingy, you know, terrible person, money is just going to make you a more stingy, more terrible person. I mean, think about all these, you know, think about professional athletes. Or why is it that some of them go into the inner city and they work with kids to try to give them a better chance in life? And they mentor kids and they invest in kids and they, they try to make a difference in the community. And other athletes who make exactly the same money spend it all on themselves. And they end up just miserable and either addicted to drugs or in jail or you know, just, just bankrupt. Why is it? Because money just makes you more of who you are. It doesn't change you. Well, we have two big obstacles when it comes to contentment. What is it that keeps us from being content? You know, we just come through a season where um, advertisers spent hundreds of millions of dollars to try to convince you that the stuff that you have isn't good enough. <laughs> the stuff you have you, needs to be replaced. Your car needs to be replaced. You need a new car. You need new clothes. You need better stuff. Terry got a new iPad for Christmas, you know. You, you need new technology. You need new stuff. And they spent tens of millions of dollars to convince you of that. And you know what? If we didn't believe that, our entire economy would completely grind to a halt and stop. And it would ruin the world economy. If everybody in the United States said, you know what? Really, I've got enough. And I just, I don't need any more. I don't need a new car, I don't need a new iPhone, I don't need a new house, I don't need a remodel, I don't need, I, I don't, my kids don't need new toys, I don't need new clothes, 
I don't need it. You know, the entire eco world economy would grind to a halt and freeze up and we'd have global disaster if we didn't believe the advertisement. And I would say that that advertising, based on what I saw this Christmas season, it's working. It's working. It's getting people to spend and fuel the economy. In his classic book called Contentment, uh, Richard Swenson points out that there's been a fundamental shift in Western civilization over the last 100 to 200 years. If you go back and read philosophers from previous centuries, you'll see that there's primary concern for virtues, things like um, honesty, generosity, contentment. He argues that our greatest value today is progress, and uh, we value that above everything else. And I love his definition of progress. It's getting more and more of everything faster and faster. How's that for a definition of our culture? Getting more and more of everything faster and faster. You know, my wife, who until just a couple of years ago, didn't even know how to turn on a computer, um, just signed up for this new program with AT&T uh, where you get a new iPhone every year. So every time a new iPhone comes out, you got the latest technology. Because, you know, just having all the world's knowledge in the palm of your hand isn't enough. You've got to be able to access that knowledge faster and faster. And for her, it's actually just because she wants to see it better. But, um, you know, they keep coming out with new and new stuff, more and more, faster and faster. And that's kind of that's where we end up. Um, our culture of progress comes with the inevitable fear that we're going to get left behind. And so we have to be more productive. We work harder, we work faster, because if you stand still, you're going to get left behind. The price tag for the good life has gone up. And you know what I've seen in my business is that debt levels are mounting and stress levels are completely off the chart. Just faster and faster and more and more technology. You know, previous generations more ex easily accepted hardship as part of life. They valued finding contentment in spite of their circumstances. Today, it's the opposite. We're the wealthiest society in history, but the virtue of contentment has virtually disappeared. We worry more. We have more stuff, but we worry more. We have more anxiety. We have more depression than any time in history. And I want to tell you, if you're here this morning because you're seeking something deeper in your life, you come to the right place. Because there's a whole world out there that's telling you over and over, if you get more stuff, if you just get more, you'll finally be happy. And it's just not true. I said there's two things that keep us from contentment. The first one is our culture. The second one, unfortunately, is ourselves. It's the way that we're wired. And it goes all the way back to the beginning. You know, if you go back to the creation of, of mankind, God created Adam and Eve, and he put him in the garden, and he walked with them daily, and they had everything that they needed, right? And the serpent came along, and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He misquotes God, and, and Eve corrects him, and she says, no, 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 you got it wrong. We can eat from the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from that one tree in the middle, or we're going to die. Satan says, you're not going to die. God knows that if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him because you'll know good from evil. You see, Satan's strategy was to convince Adam and Eve that the one thing that they didn't have was the one thing that they really needed. You know, his strategy hasn't changed over time. He still comes to us. He says, you got one thing 
You know, do you believe that God has given you everything that you need? Or is there that one thing that, if you, that you need to be happy? And Satan's going to come every day and he's going to whisper in your ear that one thing that, that you need, that car, that job, that, that promotion, that spouse, is the one thing that God's not giving you. God is not coming through for you. God is not providing everything that you need. God is not good. And that's the lie from Satan. And he's coming and whispering that in your ear every day. So we need to counteract that. We need to counteract that with truth. The truth is that God has given us everything that we need. But there's something in us that wants to believe that lie. Fast forward a couple of, couple of centuries, and we've got the children of Israel, and they're in, they're in Egypt, and they're in slavery, and they're groaning, and they're complaining, and they're saying, oh, this, is, this, this life is so torturous, and God finally sends a deliverer in Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt with plagues and all kinds of crazy stuff that God's doing, leads them to the Dead Sea, and the the Egyptian army's chasing him, and God miraculously parts the, the Red Sea, and a million Israelites walk across on dry land. And the, the Egyptian chariots try to follow, and the sea comes back in, and they drown in the sea. And I don't know what you think when you read that, but I think, man, I would just want to drop on my knees and worship God. Say, wow, God, whatever happens next, it can't be better than this, you know? I, I'm all in, right? Three days later, they come to a pool of water, and it's, it's, it's bitter. And they say, oh, Moses, God just brought us out in the desert to kill us, to kill us with thirst. And so God miraculously changes the water into, into pure, beautiful drinking water, and they drink, and they're satisfied, and all's good. And a couple days later, they get hungry. And it says this, the whole congregation of sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died at the Lord's hand in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and we ate bread to the full, for you brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> so first, it was thirst, and now it's hunger. And so God again miraculously comes and he provides manna the next morning, and the next morning, and the next morning, and he feeds them miraculously. And in Numbers 11, 4, we find them complaining again. And they say this, Remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic, and now our appetite is gone. There's nothing but this manna. <laughs> now notice this. They say, we used to eat free in Egypt. What were they in Egypt? They were slaves. But the food was free. You see how complaining clouds your judgment and makes you make really terrible decisions. Complaining is a bad thing. How many of you complained this week? Okay, let me be a little bit more specific. How many complained about your spouse? How many complained about your kids? How many complained about your job? How many complained about the job you don't have? How many complained about your coworkers? How many complained about traffic? 
How many complained about the government? How many complained about slow customer service when you're online for an hour and a half? How many complained this week? Well, stop it. Stop complaining. It ruins your contentment. Look what it did to the children of Israel. They want to go back and be slaves because the food wasn't good enough. Complaining is a bad thing, man. You see, it really doesn't matter if it's water or if it's meat or if it's clothes or if it's cars or flat screen TVs or that relationship that you think is the only thing that's going to rescue you. It's our nature to be discontent. That's the bad news. It has been from the beginning. And we're buying into Satan's lie that he first told Adam and Eve, God is withholding from you. God can't be trusted. We've talked about what contentment is. We've talked about what contentment isn't. We've talked about why we have a hard time with contentment. It's because our culture screams it in, our, in one ear and in the other. We're just wired to be discontent people. And our natural tendency, we try to find contentment in stuff. Our world tells us that we just had, fill in the blank. Then we'd be content. If I had that bigger house, I'd be content. If I had that spouse, I'd be, dis- I'd be content. If I had a different spouse, I'd be content. <laughs> if I just had children, God would just bless us with children, I'd be content. If we could just get these children out of the house, <laughs> I'd be content. You know, it's always something that, that we're wishing. And contentment is living right here, right now, with that settled satisfaction and joy. But the discontent are always living in the future. It's always when this happens. It's always someday. It's always if only. So we need to practice saying, I have everything I need, and I don't need any more. So will you repeat after me? I have everything I need. need. See, some of you can't even say it. (laughs) I have everything I need. need. And I don't need any more. Say it with me. I have everything that I need, and I don't need it anymore. You guys are a little better than first service, but I think you're still, you're not convincing me. And you see, it's just, we just get this way, we're standing over here, and it's like, you know, if I was only over there, that's where contentment is. If I had a little bit more money, if I had a bigger bank account, if I had that house, if I had that, if contentment isn't here, it's over there. But you know what you find? Is that there's somebody here who's already there. And if you come over here, he'll tell you. (laughs) Contentment's not here. (laughs) Contentment's over there. And so we're going to go looking for contentment and we're going to say, if, you know, is it here? Is it here? You know? And Marie's going to tell me, you know, it's not here. I tried. It's over there. It's all going to come over here. And what we're going to find is, you know, if I'm not content here, I'll never be content there because contentment has to be found right here. And what's going to happen is you're going to go to 7-Eleven this week and you're going to stock up on a few essentials and that nice man behind the counter is going to say, do you want to buy a lotto ticket? $94 million this week. 
And you're going to say, <laughs> I really needed you to be there for me. I have everything I need, and I don't need $94 million. <laughs> and how do I know that you don't need $94 million? Because if you did, God would have given it to you already. Because we have a loving and gracious Father who delights to give us everything that we need. And God knows that if he gave you $94 million, it would ruin your life. And your spouse wouldn't like you. And we wouldn't like you. And you'd live a miserable little life, selfishly. And God knows that you don't need $94 million. What you need is to be content where you are right now. That's what we all need. Well, contentment has two cousins. Their names are thankfulness and generosity. If contentment is not wanting more, thankfulness is wanting what I have. It says, God, thank you for this job. Thank you for this house. Thank you for what I have right now, what you've provided. I love Psalm 100. It says that there is a password to come into God's presence. You know what that password is? Thank you. Thank you is the password to come into the presence of God. Thank you for what I do have. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for this church. Thank you for taste buds because I got to eat breakfast this morning and it was delicious. Thank you for eyes to see the sunrise. Thank you. And one of the best exercises that you can do is to sit down every morning and just take out a piece of paper and even if it's just a napkin, write down 10 things that you're thankful for. And it doesn't matter if you throw it away afterwards or what you do with it, but just the exercise of writing down 10 things that you're thankful for every day will bring you into the presence of God. And it will make you a more contented person. The second cousin is generosity. Generosity demonstrates how content we are with what we have, and generosity also builds contentment. See, in my work, one of the great things, I get to be around some really incredibly generous people. And, um, you know, just seeing them motivates me and inspires me to be more generous. I, there's a guy who's 63 years old. He has all the money that he'll ever need, um, you know, to do, live the way that he wants to live. And yet... He continues to run his business and continues to meet people. He's in a serving industry, and he runs his business so that they can serve more people. And he still makes a lot of money, but he just gives it all away because he doesn't need any more. He says he's got all, got all he needs, he might, but he works for the privilege of being able to give it away and to be generous. What I found as a financial advisor in meeting, like I say, with hundreds of people, that the clients that I have who are the most generous are also the most deeply content and the most joyful. It's absolutely true. And you know what? They're not the people with the most money that are the most generous. There's a lot of people who just wouldn't imagine the amounts of money that people have, and they don't give anything to anybody. They want to use it all for themselves. And usually, 
you know, those people are not the most joyful and not the most content, but the ones that give away are. So what comes first, you know, contentment or generosity? I think they kind of feed off of each other. So if you step out in faith and you give generously, that exercises your faith muscle. And your faith muscle gets stronger and you trust God more and it builds contentment in your life. And when you build that contentment in your life, it allows you to be more generous. And it's this great cycle that goes on. So if you are thankful and if you are generous, you will experience deeper contentment and more joy. There's a familiar passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says this, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and many by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So flee these things, you man of God. You know, that phrase, if we have food and covering, we will be content. Now, we are pretty far away from that in our culture, aren't we? There's cultures in the world that would be pleased with, um, with food and covering. But um, for us, we're so far away from that. Your ultimate example is Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus was perfectly content. And yet, as far as we know, he never owned anything but the, the clothes on his back. How is that possible? He had deep fellowship with his father. I mean, you look at the, the things that Jesus said. And he, he spent all night in prayer with his father. Um, he had his ongoing relationship. He said, I'm in the father and the father is in me. He says, you know, when the disciples asked him about food and what he was going to eat, he says, I've got, I've got food that you don't even know about that my father gives me. And Jesus had this deep relationship with his father. And he knew that the Father gave him everything that he needed and could be trusted. And so um, we see Jesus as our ultimate example of contentment, but Jesus is not just an example. If we're honest about contentment, we, we can't get there. We, we do want more. We do envy people that have stuff that we want. We are not content. We, we have trouble uh, with great discontent in life's difficult circumstances. And in the depths of our beings, we're not satisfied. And writing things that you're thankful for and, and giving generously help us with our contentment. But they don't solve the problem. We need more. When we're discontent, <clears throat> the, uh, the French poet Ramoux uh, put it this way, he says, man never has what he wants because he wants everything. Isn't that good? And we do. When we're discontent, there's two paths we can run down. A secular person who believes that this material world is all that we have will plunge himself into the acquisition of material things. And it makes sense because that's all there is in that worldview. And so he'll accumulate more and more and more things, hoping to find contentment, hoping to find satisfaction and peace. But it's empty. But the religious person will do the same thing. 
See, the religious person feels that same sense of discontent, and she will just feel like, if I just served more, if I just gave more, if I just tried harder to be a better person, maybe I'd find contentment in my life. And she has this nagging fear that God just isn't quite satisfied with what she's done. And whether you're that secular person or whether you're that religious person, if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. Contentment is never found in what you have. And it's never found in what you do. Contentment is only found in a person. The next verse is really the key in, um, in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, we talked about it, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, whether in, with want or in plenty, whether humble means or prosperity, in any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret. And what's the secret? In the next verse, Paul tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The secret is a person. The secret is in Jesus Christ. In him, he's all I need. And he gives me the ability to let go of the pursuit of material things. And he gives me the ability to let go of the pursuit of religious things. And we find that contentment in a person. It starts with coming to Jesus for forgiveness and for healing in your soul. Scott's been working through Romans the last couple of weeks, and he's been talking a lot about how we become a new creation in Christ when we're born again. That's the starting point. Without that new life, without that new birth, without that forgiveness of sins, there is no contentment. But with it, there's joy and there's peace and there is contentment. Jesus is the one that gives me the strength to be fully alive in difficult circumstances. Whether you're a Christian, whether you're just a seeker this morning, the answer starts with a person, and the person is Jesus. Come to him to meet all of your needs. You know, we always think that it's a great testimony when God performs a miraculous healing, right? And that, that's something that shows Christ to the world. And it is. It's a great testimony. Believe me, my, my brother here, you know, healed from pancreatic cancer, you know? Um, UCLA, they call him the miracle man. I mean, a miraculous healing. And it's given him a platform to share Christ with so many people. But, you know, even greater than that kind of miracle is the transformation in somebody's life when God gets a hold of it and turns them around. And in an impossible situation, they find peace and joy and contentment. Um, a lot of you know... Uh, who Johnny Erickson Tata is. A lot of you know her story. Um, but for those who don't, uh, Johnny dove into a lake as a teenager and suffered a spinal injury that left her without movement below her shoulders. And she writes about the bitterness that she felt after that time and how God replaced the bitterness with an inner contentment. 
She started an international organization, Johnny and Friends, which ministers to the needs of people with disabilities and um, has done unbelievable things and, and so much in her life. And recently, Jana was with uh, one of our family members in uh, the chemo doctor. And when she walked in, there was Johnny in the, um, in the waiting room. And Jana said, you know, my first thought was, really, God? You know? Johnny, who suffered so much, has breast cancer? I mean, you know, when is enough enough in terms of suffering and difficulty? And Johnny's just encouraging to the family and, you know, just, just wonderful the way that she is. And, you know, she's just deeply, deeply content and fully alive and engaged and um, encouraged our family. But here's what Johnny's written. God chose not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. Isn't that amazing? She says, contentment has an internal quietness of heart that gladly submits to God in all circumstances. And you see, it's only by cultivating intimacy with the one who is never discontent that we find true contentment. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, and we'll close with this. Deep, contented joy comes from a place of complete security and confidence in God, even in the midst of trial. That's what I want in my life. I want a deep, contented joy and confidence in God, even in the midst of impossible situations. And when I feel the pangs of discontent, and I do all the time, it shows me that God is not done with me. It shows me that God has a work yet to do in my life. And that's really the message. When you feel that discontent, when you feel like there's something out there, let it drive you back to Christ. Let it show you that there's more work that God needs to do in your life until you're fully satisfied, fully content. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, you've addressed the issues in our life that are so relevant that your scripture is, um, just hits us right where we are. And God, I know that um, in this group there are people who are struggling with contentment. There are those who are waiting for that one thing that's going to fix it all. And Father, I pray that they would learn and come to discover that that one thing is you. That Lord, if we know you, the one who is never discontent, then we know contentment. Father, I just ask that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you this morning, who hasn't come into that relationship with the one who is never discontent, Father, that they would do that right now, that they would just ask and invite you to forgive their sin, to come into their life, to heal what's broken, and to lead them towards joy and deep contentment. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You believe that? More than enough. More than enough. And if you're finding that he's not, would you just go back and cultivate that relationship with that one who is never discontent? 
and it will bring you contentment in your life. Um, take some time this week thinking about next year. How are you going to follow Christ? How are you going to be stronger, deeper rooted in Christ at the end of next year than you are today? Have a great rest of the year, and um, we'll see you next year. All right? God bless you.